This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in uh, virtual studio is Dr. Um, Elvin Ong. Welcome, Elvin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Hi, everyone. Yeah, it's good to, good to, good to see you. We, uh, we hope to see you in person at some point. Of course, yes. you kind of get so... I, 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 I thought about these podcasts. Should I keep dating these by mentioning... The pandemic, but it's 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 hard it's hard not to. Uh, it's a never-ending uh, pandemic. Yeah, at a, at a certain level. Um, well, we're we're excited to have for many reasons to have Elvin on the the, the podcast. Um, maybe also to give a little uh, a little of that crossroads bump to his uh, forthcoming book. Uh, do I have the title right here? Um, Opposing power, building opposition alliances in electoral autocracies. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It is uh, going to be published by the University of Michigan Press uh, sometime in the spring and summer of next year. Actually, I have the copy edits with me, so uh, when it comes out, will will depend on when I can finish the copy edits. Well, good good luck to you. That's one of the for those writing a book. That's one of the least favorable parts of (laughs) of the process is when you're editing, you're doing the index. Maybe worse. I don't know, but the uh, yes, yes. Um, well, yeah, that, we look forward. Everyone go out and go out and get uh, uh, Opposing Power when it comes out um, by Elvin. Um, let's let's start off, um, maybe we'll drop into a time and place here. So you talk mm-hmm. about in your work um, the polar sort of opposites of democracy versus autocracy. But as you point mm-hmm. out that that a lot of the world lies somewhere in the middle. So um, could you talk, talk, get us through that? How... Um, on that spectrum, where is the in the places you study in particular? Yeah, so as I mentioned um, in my presentation, is that a lot of countries in the world fall in this gray zone in the polarized ends of uh, you know free and fair democracies on the one end and closed repressive autocracies on the other. Uh, this gray zone countries are typically known as hybrid regimes or okay. electoral authoritarian regimes. And in these countries, so so they have ele- they have elections for our listeners. They have elections, but the elections are uh, unfree and unfair. Let's just put it simply. Okay. Yeah. And and and, and are, are they is it because they're they are rigged or or the the system for um getting on the ballot etc is like do, where where is the where is the main and in, in terms of an unfair election where is it most unfair structurally so an unfair uh, unfree and unfair election can occur in different parts of the electoral cycle right so it can occur uh, before the elections for example yeah. making it uh, uh making it uh having difficult rules for the opposition parties to register themselves, uh, making difficult rules for the opposition parties to say, maybe uh, having to put a very large amount of uh, electoral deposit before they can even uh, compete, right? In terms of monetary uh, value. Um, Voter suppression, is that part of it? 
Voter suppression is part of it. So if you if the incumbent uh, intimidates voters uh, via the newspapers and the media to say, uh, "Don't you dare vote for the opposition because you know the chaos will come to your constituency and you will regret it if you vote for the opposition in your constituency." That is a kind of voter intimidation, which uh, definitely creates a, an uneven playing field. I I I have vivid memories of. I was in Jakarta during the sort of Suharto's last election and there was a polling station by where I was at in Jogja and this, uh, uh, the people were lining up there and there were tanks and, uh, you know, machine gun soldiers standing at the voting and people would have to like, they, they they'd punch their ballot and then they would hold it up. And so like, <laughs> Oh, he voted for gold car. Mm? And then like, put it like, like it was, very, I, it was very menacing. Um, you could imagine like that's sort of an extreme case of like that's not ha- hardly a, a a free and fair election. I mean, right? Exactly right. So these kind of uh, intimidation, the show of force on the street, is what a lot of uh, electoral authoritarian regimes do, just to intimidate voters to to vote in a certain way. So uh, the and, and you mentioned sort of that sort of the, there are lots of democratic facades. And that that, um, that some some of the trappings, but not a lot of the uh, substance. Maybe give some some of the examples, uh, right? Um, Russia, Turkey, Cambodia, Venezuela. So what what do these places share? So what all these places share is that they have a strongman dictator right at the center of the regime. So okay. Russia, you have uh, Putin. Uh, Turkey, you have uh, Erdogan, uh, currently in Venezuela, you have Maduro, and uh, in Cambodia, you have Hun Sen. And these strongman dictators, uh, they also have a ruling party, right? And this ruling party is the organizational vehicles for competing uh, in the elections. And of course, they control the state and they tell the state security forces to do whatever they would want them to do. And so because they control the state organs, they control the dominant ruling party who can go out to buy votes, who can mobilize voters, uh, that makes them very strong and very lasting, very stable. And so um, and so in some cases, it can seem at the moment that these places are... Uh, they're invulnerable. They're 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 um, impossible to defeat. Invincible. Um, you, however, are looking at kind of again your opposition alliance and ele- electoral autocracy is the title of your book. Um, so how how do opposition parties overthrow autocracies or or hybrid regimes, um, uh, especially these opposition alliances? How how do they mobilize? So I argue in my book that uh, opposition alliances uh, form under two circumstances, right? So the first circumstance is that when opposition party leaders observe that the regime, stable as they are, suddenly experience uh, multiple regime deliberating events uh, happening at the same time. They may experience an economic crisis, uh, intra-regime defection, uh, or uh, mass protests on the streets, all within a very short period of time. And this causes them to update their expectations about mm. how vulnerable or invulnerable the regime is and say, well, we really have a chance of winning. So maybe let's try to form an alliance. Uh, the second part 
uh, of you know uh, opposition parties being motivated to form alliance is whether party leaders feel that they depend on each other in order to win. Right? If party leaders believe that uh, they need each other's help to win, that they can complement each other, then they will be much more likely to form an alliance. So. And ultimately, if you do form an alliance, uh, you can actually increase your chances of winning against the income. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, what, what, what do some of the data show? Like the the chances mm-hmm. of of overthrowing um, an autocratic or hybrid regime, going it alone as an opposition party versus seeking um, an oppositional alliance with a, with with fellow opposition mm-hmm. parties. What what what? How do the odds look? Yeah, the odds are actually quite different, right? So without an opposition alliance, the general data tells us that uh, the chances of an opposition victory are about, say, 15%. Right. It's That's not low. impossible to win. You can still win, but the chances are very low, right? Um, but if you do form an alliance, your chances of victory more than doubles. They're close to 40%, around, around 38%. And so that is a really big difference. And for opposition parties that want to seize upon that additional chances of winning, uh, they may be um, very much motivated to form an alliance. Um it- Give us some. Give us a sense for our listeners, or what are some what are some instances, some examples, maybe in recent history, where we've seen um, opposition alliances come together to um, overthrow entrenched autocratic hybrid regimes. So the most recent example, of course, is uh, the Malaysian Opposition Alliance uh, in 2018. So in 2018, there was the Malaysia Pakatan Harapan uh, Opposition Alliance, or the uh, Alliance of Hope. And this was an alliance of four different opposition parties. And they were campaigning to overthrow the Barisan National uh, incumbent. Maybe, maybe say a little bit about how unlikely some of the strange bedfellows that some of these opposition <laughs> yes. parties were in the Malaysian case. Give a little yeah, flavor. In the Malaysian, yeah, in the Malaysian case, uh, it was uh, very odd that, you know, they would come together with each other. So the first opposition party is the DAP, the Democratic Action Party. They are more of a secularist opposition party where they uh, appeal mainly to the non-Malays, right? right lots of Chinese. The, the Chinese and the Indians. Um, the second opposition party in that alliance is Pati Kadilan Rakyat, PKR. And they are quite a centrist, middle uh, opposition party. They are pretty multi-ethnic. The third opposition party is Pati Amana Nagara, and Pati Amana Nagara, uh, they appeal mainly to uh, Malay Islamist uh, voters, right, who okay. um, prioritize uh, um, uh, conservative Islam. And finally, you have uh, Basatu, and that is the party led by former Prime Minister Mahathir, uh, who uh, is appeals mainly to uh, Malay ethnic voters. So it is it is quite puzzling uh, for all of them to come together because 
uh, under Mahathir's rule as the former prime minister, <laughs> right. he had repressed all of these opposition <laughs> party leaders, right? He had uh, locked up all of these other opposition party leaders uh, in jail at some point or another. And now they are all coming together and raising hands together, standing on the same stage, trying to form this alliance to top, topple the Brazilian It's crazy, the, 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 the will-they-won't-they they relationship between Anwar and Mahathir, for example, just as, as one, yes. like the... This uh, is wild, um, but 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 it but it's successful. Indeed, eventually uh, in 2018, it was successful. They managed to win a slim majority of the seats in the legislature, and um, after the elections, they managed to form the government. Um, all right. So, how about um, sort of courting, coordinating elites? Um, how uh, so things like um, coordinating candidate selection like how do, what are what are some of the mechanics of how these um opposition parties come together to um to work against to, to, to victory yeah so uh, in the first part of alliance formation i argue that opposition party leaders need to bargain and negotiate with each other to select candidates right to compete uh, against the incumbent. And by selecting candidates, what I mean is that, say, in a presidential system, they have to select only one opposition leader to compete against the incumbent. And in legislative elections, they have to split the electoral districts among themselves to decide which party competes in which electoral district. So in the Malaysian case, what we see so, so, is So that they would only have one opposition person run in a, in a particular legislative district? Yes, so DA, only one uh, uh, candidate from the DAP will compete in one district, one candidate from Amana will compete in one district, uh, and so they split all the districts evenly amongst themselves, and there are no overlapping candidates. I guess, and in, in that in, is the uh, the alternative that w- to that would be to form a, a third kind of party in name only that... that, that all the opposition ones, but I guess this, the, the 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 logic for this strategy is that I guess the voters like a particular party uh, in a particular region, and so they're more likely to throw in their lot with that. Is that what what is do we know about what the logic is for doing that versus uh, you know everyone coming together in a in a new super opposition party? <laughs> So the the logic of doing that is that uh, opposition parties will compete in constituencies where they uh, have the highest chances of winning. So, for example, if the DAP knows that it is uh, popular in certain areas of Malaysia, then it will say that they want to compete in those areas and the opposition parties will seat their way to for the DAP candidates to, to compete there uh, and vice versa for all the other opposition parties. And I, and I guess it guarantees that a seat at the table for those opposition parties, each, each of them respectively when, it, when they come to, to a coalition to make the government, right? Yes, exactly. So at... Eventually, once the results are known, um, then everyone will say, okay, who has won the most number of seats? Uh, who, and proportionately, they will divvy up the like, cabinet uh, positions uh, in, in, uh, in, the gov- in the next government if they are victorious. 
uh, how do we, you've done a lot of, you've done a lot of research, um, interviews, archival, your own data collection, um, maybe in the Malaysia case or really any other case. Um, do you have any like good juicy narratives about how, um, you know, how, how do these, how are these deals made in back? Is it, is it a kind of, uh, look here are the, we don't like each other, but here are the data. And if we want to get these guys out, like, like how are those deals brokered? It's really fascinating to me, like the, how the sausage is made in this case. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the deals are made through repeated interaction and bargaining uh, with each other. So yes, as what you mentioned, uh, the opposition parties will rely oftentimes on previous election results. Right, so fa- failed on polling data. Fa- failed uh, opposition going it alone, that, that must inspire like, okay, well, we could we can joust another windmill or we can try to, does that happen? Yeah, so if uh, the from a previous election, they know that two opposition parties competing in this district causes both of them to lose, then it makes, they will learn over time, right? To say, refer to that and say, well, that was a disaster for us. What we should do is uh, back only one candidate. And then they will have probably some polling data to say, look, uh, I'm the one who's clearly more popular and you know, you should give me the right of way to, to compete. And, and then they will just uh, uh, use whatever information they have to, to try to claim the right of way. And there's a lot of trading going on, right? You can imagine Imagine a hundred slices of pizza, right? And okay. who wants to uh, claim which slice of pizza and uh, 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 who likes to each uh, who likes which bite better uh, of the pizza okay. better, right? Um, and there are many ways to divvy up that pizza. So there's a lot of uh, trading going on. Did they? Um, I I'm just I was just thinking about your book, and I was thinking like you could. It's not far fetched to see like. Is it, does it, is it, is it an odd feeling thinking that like, this could be like a a Bible that they would say like, okay, um, look, he's done the research and if we want to win mercenarily, this is what we should do. Is that, is that a weird position to be in that like, um, that this could be a code cracker for, um, opposition alliances? It, It could potentially be, but you know, as I mentioned in my book, uh, a lot of uh, opposition party leaders are still very wary of the costs involved, right, in doing all yeah. these negotiation. And my book tells them all the costs. Yeah, yeah. What what say, are what yeah. are the <laughs> right? So what what are some of the costs while we're there? Yeah. So the costs, uh, primarily number one, is the cost of uh, withdrawing your candidacy, right? So in a legislative election, if you have to withdraw from so the electoral, and then yeah, yeah, you have you have worked so hard to invest in time, effort, and energy into uh, growing the grassroots from a certain. And you got to tell these district. people to stand down in your district. Yeah, you yeah. got to. The party leaders have to tell people to stand down, and in fact, we are going to support another opposition party to compete in that district, mm. and of course your party members will be upset and say no we're not giving way but you're the party leader and so you may you know what the stories i've heard is that oh the party leaders will sit down and have a cup of coffee with their uh, <laughs> party members and say right well i will compensate you with a party position elsewhere uh you just withdraw and you know we'll, we'll give this slice of the pizza to to the other opposition party yeah and the second kind of cost 
uh, I was just about to go on is the cause of ideological compromise, right? So when parties yeah. have to compete together using, say, maybe a common manifesto, they oftentimes have to stay silent about the niche policies that they may be very much interested in. So uh, in forging these kind of uh, common manifestos, there's a lot of ideological compromise involved and party members and supporters may not like that ideological compromise. So again, they might launch an internal revolt against the party leader. Um, one of the one of the interesting. So you 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 also have some historical information that uh, that that's really interesting. Um, maybe say a bit about the Philippines and South Korean cases. Also, how you conducted your research. But um, what did you find in those cases of of um, electoral opposition? So what we find in the Philippines was that in the 1986 elections against uh, Ferdinand Marcos, uh, there was an opposition alliance formed between uh, Corazon Aquino and Salvador Laurel, the two leading opposition party leaders at that at time. But in 1987, South Korea, against the, in the elections against the military regime, there was no opposition alliance formed between uh, Mr. Kim Dae-jung and Mr. Kim Yong-sam, the two leading opposition party leaders at okay. that time. So my book, uh, the, a big half of my book is really about comparing across these two countries. And of course, I use a wide variety of sources of data to try to trace why uh, one uh, in one country alliance was formed and another country an alliance was not formed. Yeah, yeah. Give us uh, uh, again as a as an archival historian myself. I'm always loving little <laughs> little taste of. Uh, do you have any nuggets from the uh, from your archives? What did you What did you find in and what what kinds of sources were you using? Yeah. So in trying to do this comparison, I use a wide variety of sources. So there was secondary literature, newspaper reports at the time, autobiographies and diaries of opposition party leaders. Mm -hmm. But most importantly for me, there were also all these declassified American foreign policy documents. And by these declassified American foreign policy documents, I'm referring to memos and telegrams from the CIA, from the Department of State, as, as well as from the National Security Council uh, of the Reagan administration at that time. So a lot of these uh, declassified documents, such as from the CIA, you can get from the CIA website, right? They're publicly available, as well as the Digital National Security Archives. But for the... Uh, uh, the archival uh, materials from, say, the National Security Council, I had to go to the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. And so I spent like a couple of weeks there going through the boxes and the folders. Yeah. So did you, did you find some of the things that you're, that say the, that, that allowed the Malaysian case to be, or the Mexican case to be successful um, in, in, um, in in the opposition alliance, did did the uh, thinking about the some did some of the some certainly the vulnerabilities um, must help right like the 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 best cases is is the best am I right the best cases when these two storms come together when there there is vulnerability and then these alliances work together is that right yeah so yeah so in the archives what I found was that 
you know the the there were all these reports of uh, being sent by the foreign service officers of the American embassy in Manila and so being sent back to tell Washington DC what was happening in these two countries and so uh, what the foreign service officers was writing was that uh, it was very real, visceral and real that um, the opposition party leaders saw a lot of the vulnerabilities of the uh, incumbent regimes and that they were actively reporting about all these vulnerabilities of the incumbent regime like economic crisis, uh, recurring mass protests on the streets, uh, as well as defections from within the regime. But of course, at the same time, these foreign service officers were also reporting about the perceptions of mutual dependency between the opposition party leaders, right? So they reported in Philippines that the party leaders really saw their mutual dependency and in you, South you Korea mean, that... You mean with each other, like Laurel and Aquino with, saw that or... Yeah, they saw that, right? They saw that they were dependent on each other because um, let's just take the Philippine case, right? Um, Corazon Aquino was known to be very popular at that time. And she was very popular because she had gained a lot of sympathy from Filipinos of her being the widow of the assassinated Benigno Aquino. Right. Uh, Benigno Aquino was uh, tragically assassinated uh, when he stepped off the airplane at Manila Airport in 1983. So she had gained a lot of sympathy from Filipinos, but at the same time, there were doubts about whether she, was she a real politician. She seemed mostly like a housewife. <clears throat> she seemed quite naive. She did, didn't know how politics work. But on the other hand, Salvador Laurel was known to be a very much of a traditional politician. He had a very strong party organization behind him, uh, known as UNIDO. Uh, just a couple of years before, UNIDO had actually won the largest slice of opposition seats in the legislature. Uh, he was known as a great organizer, a great fundraiser. So the logic was that if they could combine their relative strengths and weaknesses, uh, they could help mitigate each other and you know um, push Marcos over the top. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So the combination of this sort of this emotional um, pull that one of the candidates could have, and then the kind of machine politics um, understanding of of the other could 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 achieve success. Um, mm -hmm. Well, how about um, you know you talked about the the uh, you know that this alliance building they've got to perceive the benefits as. Um, greater than the costs. Um, another interesting strategy you, you mentioned is um, uh, cross-party vote transfer. Um, mm -hmm. how, does, how does that work? Um, how do they coordinate voters in, in something like a, and what, I guess what is a cross-party vote transfer? Yeah, cross-party vote transfer is basically the phenomena where uh, a supporter of one opposition party votes for the candidate of another opposition party, right? So let's say if you are a supporter of a secularist opposition party, say like the DAP in Malaysia, but you actually vote for the uh, Islamist candidate that is from the Islamist opposition party that is nominated okay. in your district. So that is a cross-party vote transfer. 
And I argue that, you know, opposition alliances with their common manifestos, with their common logos and common campaigning together can actually persuade a lot of these supporters to engage in cross-party vote transfer because it makes them care more about democracy, about overthrowing the regime rather than care about their ideological differences. So is that, would you... I mean, I guess not to rank the strategies, but it it, <laughs> see, it seems it seems slightly more more nuanced and developed than the like. Okay, you just continue to vote for your people in your silo, and we'll vote for ours in this other district, and then we'll figure it out uh, when we cross the poll. As where this one seems at least in a kind of a manifesto, if if nothing more than window dressing or a logo, like, or like they're kind of, uh, does, is that a, would you say that's a, that's an, that's a strategy that's one step above the, um, just, um, basic, um, uh, uh, coordinate, coordinating candidate selection? Yeah. So that is, uh, these national joint campaigns, what I call national joint campaigns of, uh, common manifesto campaigning, uh, using a common logo campaigning, that is definitely one step above uh, coordinating. Yeah, because it because it takes na- it takes national coordination at, at 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 multiple opposition organizations, right? Like exactly. So if you have four opposition parties coming together, you need all four opposition parties to contribute to a common manifesto. And so what are the the policies that you're going to advocate for in your common manifesto? common manifesto, it has to appeal to the supporters of all four opposition parties. And then it requires a tremendous amount of coordination. So in Malaysia, I know that the common manifesto was uh, written over more than a year's worth of work because they were consulting amongst themselves. Yes, Buku Harapan. They were consulting amongst themselves. They were consulting uh, within the parties about whether it was acceptable to have uh, one policy or not. And they were also consulting with civil society to get that input uh, to the, yeah. the Buku Harapan. Yeah. Um, so how do they, how do the, what role does, does vulnerability play? I mean, we already talked about this a little in the, in the Philippine case, but um, how do we know that an incumbent regime is vulnerable and how does that factor into the degree to which um, I, I could see, could it have the opposite effect where there some an opposition party says, "Hey, that vuln- that regime is vulnerable. I don't have to work together. Maybe we could go on on our own." Um, like, where? How does that? How does that uh, that chemistry happen? Uh, or al- you alchemy? About, <laughs> you mean the mutual dependency part? Well, yeah, like it's where does how do they how do they what's the calculus in terms of like I guess how do we know an incumbent regime is vulnerable is one question, uh, and then and then um, how does that factor in the calculation to work together as opposition mm, parties? Yeah, so uh, obviously opposition party leaders always. Uh, the default mode is always to disagree with each other <laughs> about whether the incumbent regime is vulnerable or not, right? And so okay. what I argue in my book is that you must have a critical condition. And this critical condition is that having multiple regime debilitating events happening within a short period of time. And so having this recurring mass protests on the streets, economic crisis, uh, military defection, uh, superpower withdrawing the support, all by happening within three, two to three years will let 
all the opposition party leaders to update their expectations, right? Because if you have only these events happening in isolation, then there's going to be a lot of disagreements. Some people might say, oh, the regime is vulnerable. Some people say no. Some people say, well, are you crazy? Mm -hmm. We're not going to win at all, right? But if all these happen within a short amount of time, then party leaders will update their expectations and agree with each other to say, okay, now's our time, right? Uh, to now's our time to try to topple the regime. So are there cases where the regime is really not seen as vulnerable, but um, opposition alliance works? A regime that is not seen as vulnerable, but the opposition <laughs> alliance forms in the end. I guess the answer uh, is no, if it's such a hard, we can't think of a case. <laughs> Yeah, I would say I can really think of a case where um, a regime is not vulnerable and an alliance is formed. Uh, unfortunately, um, as I kind of <laughs> explained in my uh, in my replies to one of your uh, uh, students, I guess, is that you know these sort of uh, alliances are really quite endogenous, right? And by endogenous, I mean um, the conditions call for these alliances to, to be uh, brought forth. And so it's only when party leaders see, hey, we have a chance of winning, and therefore they are therefore more likely to uh, form an alliance. Uh, if they find yeah. they don't have a chance of winning, then in my book I will say, oh, at best they can do just um, one part one kind of uh coordination only in terms of a legislative seat um, uh, coordination. Um, spe speaking of, uh, feel free not to answer this question, but speaking of sure. electoral autocracies that are not vulnerable, um, the Singapore uh, 2020 elections, um, say compared to the 72 election, how, how, or, or, or I guess recent, um, how do you uh, how do you gauge what's going on in in Singapore in uh, with your kind of your template of 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 opposition? Yeah, so Singapore is a case of a consistently dominant uh, hybrid regime, right? Where you have the opposition, uh, where you have the dominant ruling party, the People's Action Party, uh, winning consistently more than 60% of the votes over time, over yeah. the decades, and consistently winning more than 90% of all the seats in parliament. Right? Yeah. And so that sounds to me like a consistently dominant. Uh, uh, ruling party. Uh, but what happened is that there was an anomaly in 1972. Right? And, and the anomaly was that uh, opposition parties at that time, they did not coordinate with each other. And from 1972 onwards, they all started coordinating with each other in terms of splitting the different electoral districts amongst themselves. And 1972 was such an anomaly, right? Because it was kind of the Singapore's first really competitive elections where the opposition parties all jumped back into the electoral arena. But because they didn't have any information of who was stronger or weaker than each other, then they all said, well, you know, they're going to bolster uh, their claims of uh, competing in all the electoral districts. What what role do you think uh, technology plays in coordinate allowing the coordination of 
opposition alliances <laughs> is it is that uh um is that is that an important factor is it um is it necessary but not sufficient what do you think i think there definitely is an important factor so in the 1970s and 1980s, like opposition parties will talk to each other through the media, right? So they will claim and say, oh, I want to compete in this district. I want to compete in that district. <laughs> right. And then they will just fight it out in, in the newspapers. Um, but now, <laughs> um, with the advent of uh, messaging apps, like such as WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal, uh, opposition party leaders simply uh, <laughs> text each other yeah. on which districts they want to compete in. So uh, I remember quite vividly, I was uh, interviewing an opposition party leader and then he received a message on his phone and then they said, <laughs> oh, look, this other opposition party leader is uh, messaging me to tell me like you know, where he wants to compete in and I'm going to tell him in your dreams, right? <laughs> uh, you're not going to wow. have to have that slice <laughs> of the pizza so so the, the message the, the the messaging uh apps definitely make uh coordination uh, much easier but does does it allow the um electoral autocracies also um a, a window into those into the goings-on uh perhaps right we don't know whether there are any um leaks uh, within the opposition parties that the electoral autocracy might take advantage of. Um, but whatever the case, you know, I think sometimes the the electoral autocracy can actually sit back and um, enjoy the opposition parties bargaining and fighting among themselves about who to compete in which electoral district. It ultimately, if... You know, they coordinate, they coordinate. If they don't, all the merrier for the electoral authoritarian regime. And the incumbent right. can just, uh, what the incumbent is focused on is simply just maximizing their vote share in all the districts across the country, right? And whether it is, they are comp if they are competing against two opposition parties, so be it. And they will have a much easier time. But of course, if uh, they are competing against one opposition party, then that might be complicate things a little. But you know, they they are still very dominant, so uh, no loss to them. So maybe maybe in as a, as sort of some parting thoughts, uh, where do you think the where do you think democracy stands in in Southeast Asia? I mean, if if we were having this conversation. In 2000, we would be talking in the two, early 2000s. It would be this incredible, and even actually up until maybe recently, the the kind of um, major advance of of democracy in in, in Thailand, in Myanmar, in Indonesia. Um, where uh, I mean, maybe for our, our for our listeners might, who might not know, um, maybe give a little snapshot of of uh, why it's not so rosy and what I guess gaze into your. You're you're a political scientist. You got to gaze into that crystal ball <laughs> and give us a give us a, a, a prognosis of what you think is going to happen. I think uh, democracy is really in peril in Southeast Asia, right? Um, not only do you have the difficult situations across the various countries being wrecked by COVID, um, you yeah. also have a lot of. Uh, entrenched authoritarian interest across various countries. 
um, that don't seem to be to be budging, right? Like the military in Myanmar, uh, like the uh, Thailand has settled in for the long haul. It seems Thailand has settled in for the long haul. The military there are actually a little bit smarter. They have taken off their. Uh, um, military uniform and put on mm-hmm. civilian clothing, right? Yeah. Um, hey, we're your we're your politicians now. <laughs> in Cambodia, again, the Hun Sen is very strong. Doesn't seem to be uh, moving aside. Uh, and in the Philippines, uh, Duterte mm-hmm. is very strong. And so there's the question there of is an opposition alliance going to be formed in the Philippines to compete against Duterte in the upcoming presidential elections in 2022, right? And I just had a conversation with a Filipino friend uh, yesterday, and he was not optimistic <laughs> at the prospect of an opposition alliance forming. Is, is, um, there, so, is there, is there, yeah. it's because there's not enough vulnerability or not enough collaboration among opposition alliances? I think both. I think number one, uh, Duterte himself seems very popular, very strong, right? So yeah, opposition yeah. leaders are uh, uh, opposition leaders sense that well, even if they form an alliance, it, it's not going to uh, topple him. So why try at all? And number two, opposition party leaders, they all want to be the figurehead, right? Nobody wants to give way to each other. And why would they give way to each other when it's all about a contest of popularity, it's a contest of um, uh, a, a family name, right? That, that There's no real kind of mutual complementarity uh, between each other. So um, the... The nomination is supposed to close uh, on the 8th of October. And if I'm not wrong, last minute substitutions can still be made throughout uh, November to the end of December, uh, to the end of November. So I think come December, we have, have a much clearer sense of whether there will be an alliance form against Duterte. Well, we'll. Uh... We'll ha- we'll have to have you back um, to not only talk about that, but uh, official book launch um, when it's out. Um, thank you so much, Elvin, for for joining us and at the Center for Southeast Asian Studies here. Thank you very much, Eric, for having me. Yeah, yeah, we'll look forward to chatting again, and we'll uh, hopefully see you in person soon. Thank you. I hope to see you in person soon as well. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.